This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 3, From Ordeal to Autobiography. The concept of confession as a social and religious necessity is as old as history. Studies have been made of the place of confession in various cultures. T.J. Pinchers wrote of the place of confession in a Syro-Babylonian life and religion. Egyptian religion called for confession of sins relating not only to the gods and to men, but also to inner moral weakness and failure. In one form or another, confession is to be found all over the world. It is man's admission of his moral and social failures. Given the fact that, since the Garden of Eden, no society has been perfect, we can see how inescapable and necessary confession is. The more advanced the culture, the more conscious it becomes of its faults and failures. Rebels against the status quo are least likely to occur in the lowest cultures simply because the moral sense there is least expressed and vocal. A moral discomfort and outrage does not in itself make a man good, but without it he is not likely to seek moral improvement for himself or for society. As justice becomes more and more important to a culture, so too does the confession of sins, because those who are unjust need to see what they are and to mend their ways. It is not unusual that in our era some countries call their prisons penitentiaries. They thereby echo the Catholic requirement of confession and penance. The goal at the beginning of the prison system was to provide a secular means of bringing criminals to penance or repentance. For justice to prevail in society, there must be more than prison terms and hangings. Men need to repent of their violations of the laws of society and mend their ways. Justice is more than punishment and executions. It is a way of life ordained by God. As a result, pagan societies, like Christian ones, have been concerned with confession, the confession of sins. With some insistence, more than a few societies have required it to the point of resorting to brutality and torture, as witness Roman law and Marxist law. So-called primitive societies are weak in this sphere and hence are less just, maintaining the social forms. The old ways is then more important than justice. To believe in the society's or culture's need for justice is to be critical of the social order and to call for its improvement. In approaching this need for justice, a culture can, first, insist on full and perfect justice here and now. This requires a totalitarian control over all the people. The thought of anyone escaping justice leads to dictatorial steps. 
the property of suspected and yet untried drug smugglers and dealers is seized prior to trial and made unavailable to them. This is also done in political cases, as with the Marcos in the USA and Duvalier in France. This attempt at efficient and total justice becomes more and more coercion and conversion and regeneration are bypassed in favour of statist force. Second, justice can be seen as coming to men and nations in diverse ways ordained by God. This can be by means of God-ordained courts of justice, which recognise that total justice is not within their sphere of jurisdiction or possibility. God's providential government is seen as an important arm of justice. Ultimately, not only death, but finally Christ's last judgment will render perfect justice for all and to all. But men have commonly been discontented unless full and perfect justice is obtainable here and now and in their time. Various means have been used in the vain attempt to gain it. A prominent instrument was the ordeal. In Western history, it first appeared among the Franks, and it is first mentioned in a recension of the Salic Law, circa AD 510. Despite the protests of some churchmen and, later, popes, it passed into general use in Christendom. Rulers were not much troubled by its non-biblical character. It met their need. The ordeal was a last resort. If neither witnesses nor circumstantial evidence provided the solution to a crime, the court's resort, at first essentially a king's resort, was to the ordeal. The ordeal was seen as a means of involuntary confession. In 1935, Gordon Sinclair wrote of an instance of the ordeal in Central Africa. A minor chief became ill after eating and suspected poison. The juju man brewed a special poison which was then administered to each of the wives. Each drank the poison, soon became ill and vomited it, and were well, but an older woman did not vomit it, confessed the poisoning and died. Those wives who knew they were innocent were relaxed and their stomachs readily rejected the poison. The guilty person's stomach did not. However, in the same place, Sinclair and a Dutchman saw another form of the ordeal and Sinclair submitted to it a heated iron pressed on his tongue with the steam hissing but no burning. In medieval Europe, quote, the ordeal existed in that narrow place where suspicion was considerable but guilt was unquestionable. End quote. The right to order an ordeal was essentially a royal right, although in, the time, in time the presence of a priest, willing or unwilling, was required. Churchmen like Peter the Chanter attacked the ordeal as contrary to Scripture and thus tempting God. The church had its alternative to the ordeal, which tended to run parallel to it. This was the oath, a form of the ordeal, which required God's eventual judgment on the one who swore a false oath. Only men whose word was trustworthy, and who could provide men of good standing to witness to their character and word, could acquit themselves by means of an oath. Oathworthiness marked a man of honour. In time, the ordeal gave way to the court trial alone. Whereas the ordeal had been a last resort for the court, it was now replaced by it. 
There were two reasons for this, according to Bartlett. First, there was the revival of Roman law, and Roman law made torture legal. Torture, previously illegal in terms of biblical law, became legal in the late medieval and especially Renaissance eras. To accomplish the goal of justice, it was held that justice required torture in order to settle the question of guilt. This demand was an aspect of the belief in justice now without delay. Second, the nature of criminal prosecution also changed. Previously, the prosecution was by or in the name of the injured party against a suspect. If the accusation proved false, the accuser was potentially liable. Now the state itself was the prosecutor. This meant that prosecution was by the state in a state's court. And in terms of state or royal law, not God's law. The judge thus became an inquisitor rather than a man who was representing neither prosecution nor defence. This, as Bartlett noted, significantly shifted the balance of power in the court. Unhappily, some churchmen, later both Catholic and Protestant, accepted this change in the courts and also the use of torture. As the ordeal faded as a means of confession, the church was re-emphasising the importance of the confessional. After AD 1215, church members were required to confess their sins to a priest at least once a year before receiving communion at Easter, they had to confess and carry out the required penance. This confession not only required that amends be made for sins, but also that offences committed against others be followed by reconciliation. Protestants have rightly called attention to the later abuses of the confessional and wrongly neglected its importance to Christian faith. Roman Catholic apologists for the confessional have wrongly sidestepped the abuses that grew up and the shift to an overguided and sometimes inquisitorial interrogation. In the process, the religious and social importance of the confessional has been neglected. As John Bossy, in his excellent account of Sin and Penance, 1400-1700, has written, quote, Under the influence of Aquinas, the notion made headway that penance was as much medicinal or directed to reforming the future conduct of the sinner as vindictive or directed to restoring an objective social balance. End quote. St. Charles Borromeo, who invented the confession box, was, according to Bossi, quote, consciously competing for the palm of visible holiness with a city, after all, no great distance away. End quote. Geneva under Calvin. As Calvin was hated in Geneva, so too was Borromeo in Catholic Milan, where sole citizens of Milan tried to assassinate him. In the Roman imperial era, St. Augustine had written in his Confessions to describe his religious and intellectual journey. It was thus an autobiography, although radically different from more recent ones. As the Catholic confessional and the Protestant prayers of specific confession directly to God began to wane in their social power, the confessional autobiography took the place of the private and Christian confession. Especially in the 20th century, the tell-all biography has become increasingly common. If a prominent person fails to confess all, his or her biographers are ready to do it for him or her. 
Thus, in the 1980s alone, we have had autobiographies and biographies providing us with unpleasant, ugly and vicious details of marital life, homosexuality, incest and more. We are back to the confessional in a public way. What began in the 1920s in magazines such as True Confessions is now a common part of many segments of the media. Because confession no longer has a truly godly place of centrality in the religious lives of men, it has been replaced by a morbid curiosity and a compulsive humanistic confession to the public. Where there is no godly absolution, the guilt remains and the need for absolution continues. As a consequence, confessions will out in remarkable ways. If a pastor is at all kindly and circulates much in the world at large, he is sure to hear many confessions. People want to get it off their chest because guilt does burden a person. It is an ironic fact that modern man thinks of the confessional as a relic of the past and yet finds it so compulsive a need in the present to confess. Bossy points out that the religious explosion known as the Reformation was brought about, quote, when the civilised Leo X, who thought satisfaction for sin a, a barbarous anachronism, scattered remission for punishments in which he did not believe in front of a population persuaded that sin would always have to be paid for in one way or another, end quote. We have today perhaps a comparable situation. The state, its educators, science and psychotherapy deny even the idea of sin and crime is explained away in environmental terms. Sin will out, however, and it demands atonement and the absolution of atonement. The results this time will be more radical than in Luther's day. This is the end of chapter 3. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.